0: So we will be looking at the passage in 1 Corinthians, chapters fourteen to sixteen. First, um, Paul. Paul. One of the one of the one of the gifts of the Spirit that Paul features here is the uh, gift of prophecy. So I, so I thought I would read you a little story about prophecy. Um, a, a medieval Jewish astrologer prophesied to a king that. Um, this friend of his, a wicked friend who was a really bad influence on the king, would, would soon die. And, and sure enough, the wicked friend died a short time later. And the king was outraged at the astrologer, certain that his prophecy had brought about the woman's death. So he, he summoned the astrologer and gave him this command. Prophet, tell me when you will die. The astrologer realized that the king was planning to kill him. Immediately, no matter what answer he gave... So he said, finally, I do not know when I will die. I only know that whenever I die, you will die three days later. <laughs> now, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe that would be an example of false prophecy in general, hey? Eh? Prophesying and seeing people die, especially with the whole astrology thing. But I, I, I thought it was an enjoyable story about, a, about um, the wrong kind of prophecy. Yeah. So on a more serious note though, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 37, he says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Master's commandment. Actually, I had an interesting discussion with a whole bunch of people on Facebook this last week about this. You know, some people out there, they say, well, you know the Torah? That's like, that's the Bible, like that's scripture, right? And, and then the writings of the apostles in Paul's letter, like, they're, they're good, but they don't have that same level of authority. It's not a very popular idea, but there's some people out there toying with the idea. And, and frankly, I don't know how someone can come to that conclusion. So I was, I was throwing a lot of scriptures out there about that. And uh, this is an example. Paul here is either genuinely authorized by Messiah to speak on Messiah's behalf and to give commands from the Messiah, or Paul is out to lunch. There are only two options here, right? He says very clearly, what I'm writing you is the, the master's commandment. So this is like a mitzvah, a mitzvah from Yeshua, right? That's the idea there. And, uh, you know, there's kind of, so it's the, kind of the idea, well, you know, Moses said, you know, don't add to the Torah, right? So anybody after that, if they said anything that looked like he was adding to the Torah, well, that's a no-no. But, um, but here we see that Paul was not adding to the Torah. He was giving the complete thing. So um, let's just remember that. And therefore, the things that Paul is writing here apply very, very much to us as believers in the Messiah. Um, Paul wrote with some degree of authority here about even um, what our meetings can look like. And uh, this is important material, because if we want to look at the bigger picture, we are laying the groundwork here for a significant move of God. I mean, he is moving in our midst. He's speaking to our hearts, and Yeshua is leading us. But I believe it's going to break out, and it's going to get a lot bigger. And my dream is to see a lot of people come in who are totally unchurched, who have maybe never walked with the Creator before, and, and see them come to know Him and come to be real disciples of Yeshua. I mean, I love church people too, right? Um, bring them in, that's great. But, but you know, Yeshua went, he went after the, quote, sinners, right? He went after the people that were so far out there. And, um, and, and that's my dream. So, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, as we study the writings of the apostles, as we, as we dig deep into the foundational books of scripture, we are, we are laying the groundwork to see a move of God happen that will be solid, that will be balanced, that will be powerful long-term. And uh, we, we want to see a movement that will, that will span generations. We don't want something that's going to spin out and, and crash, right? So uh, stuff like this that Paul's talking about is important in that, in that regard. Because, hey, these are like writings from the early Yeshua movement. The early Yeshua movement was a powerful move of God. Like it, it turned the world right side up. A lot of people were saying it was turning the world upside down, but, but au contraire, it was turning the world right side up, right? So we have some lessons as a movement to learn from the, uh, from the early church. So let's have a look at that together. Uh, firstly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1, you, you can almost imagine um, Paul, his Hebrew name is Shaul, right? like You can imagine him like a, like a sage. And uh, each of us are like a spiritual pilgrims, right? And, and you're on a journey. I'm on a journey. We're on a sacred, ju- sacred journey, right? We were talking about that last Shabbat. And, and it's like we're on a journey. And he has these like, words of wisdom for us. He has these little like, clues for us on the way. And, uh, and this is the big one. He says, pursue love. He actually says it's a way uh, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, uh, the, the, the love is a way. The, the Hebrew word for way is derech. Everybody say derech. And the Hebrew word for love is ahava. Everybody say ahava. You ever seen like spa ahava? It's a spa in Saskatoon? Yeah? Okay, well that's the word for love, right? It's like the love spa is basically what that means in in English. So anyway, like the derech ahava is the way of love. And uh, here we have this sage from the early Yeshua movement saying like, pursue the derech ahava, the way of love. What does that look like in my life? What does that look like on a daily basis in terms of how I do my spirituality, how I relate to people, eh? um, how I run a business, uh, etc. What does the Deir HaHavah look like? And uh, he, he, he doesn't say to just like, sit there and expect that it will come to you. He says to pursue it. Eh? That has to do with like, aggressively going after something. It connotes like being intentional and, and actually taking thought to this thing and, and, uh, and really wanting it like, in, a, in a proactive way. So uh, th- th- that's a journey that I'm feeling challenged in. Like, you know, if I have a priority list, this whole, like, way of love thing is, like, shooting up the charts right now in my life, eh? Um, b- because of Paul and what he has to say about that. So that's the context about talking about some of these, uh, these uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to call them endowments. Uh, it's, the, it's the same concept, right? Like, there are certain ways that the Holy Spirit moves in a person's life. Uh, sometimes it's for personal, spiritual, like, building up as we'll read about sometimes, and more often it's to build up the community. Um, so we're going to be looking at, at some of those things here. So in 14 verse 1, we're going to look at prophecy first, and then we're going to look at tongues, because these are the two main gifts that he's uh, discussing in detail here. Eh? Uh, 14 verse 1, he says, He um, Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So Paul here says that this is something to really want. This is something to earnestly desire. Like to have, um, the, the Hebrew term for the Holy Spirit is the Ruach HaKodesh, okay? Ruach means spirit, wind, or breath in Hebrew. So everybody say Ruach. Yeah, so like when there's a big, you know like in this last week there was like a real wind blowing, right? In Hebrew you'd say that's a, there's a real Ruach blowing. And uh, it's the same word for spirit, okay? And then Hakodesh means like uh, the holy or of holiness. So it's literally the spirit of holiness. So if I refer to the Holy Spirit as the Ruach Hakodesh, you know what I'm talking about, right? We're on the same page? Okay, great. I like using the Hebrew terms. It just makes me feel closer to like the early church and, you know, the the language of our Savior, uh, etc. So he says specifically, prophecy is one to go after. Uh, He repeats that same thing in verse 39. He says, desire earnestly to prophesy. Wow, he said it twice, eh? It must be important. And uh, we we talked last week about, you know, when 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 you throw out the word prophet or prophecy, like all kinds of wonky images come to a lot of people's minds. You know, fortune tellers or charlatans or glitzed glamour and all this stuff. And we established last week that the biblical concept of prophecy is simply being a spokesperson for somebody. Right? So when you prophesy, you're speaking the word of God for him That's what it means all right? So that, that's the basis that we're going to be uh, functioning on here That's something to want you know, To want to be a spokesperson for him To want to be able to speak his specific word To specific people at specific times And uh, into specific situations It's like, wow just, just think about this for a second If you're going to be moving in that capacity It means you're going to be getting pretty close to him Cause you can't you can't you can't share from his heart unless you're in touch with his heart and when you get in touch with his heart there's that beautiful relationship that develops there's a deep rapport that, that grows between you and him so I don't know I mean when I, when I look at this gift I almost think you know I've got a little bit of a self-interest here really because I want to know him better and if I move in the gift of prophecy I'm, I'm going to get to know him better in the process too and, and that's a good deal it's my heart's desire um, 14 verse 12 along those lines <clears throat> he says um since you're zealous of spiritual gifts seek to abound for the edification of the of the uh, congregation <clears throat> like what does edification mean it means to build up it's like uh, you know i have a background in construction right it means to build something or like something having to do with construction and being constructive right so he's saying, okay, so go after spiritual gifts, but you really want to go after the ones that will build up the community, that will be constructive to your congregation. And maybe, maybe that's an underlying attitude that we can cultivate in our hearts. Like, do I live to see my congregation built up? Do I live to, to see my fellow disciples of the Master like just built up in their faith and in their inner spiritual lives? Um, I, I have to admit... I've traveled extensively like in terms of the Messianic movement and I have visited a lot of congregations and I've seen a lot of stuff here in our province. That is not the attitude of a lot of people. I've encountered people who are lackadaisical about community, who just really don't care, who don't bother going to gatherings on Shabbat. I've I've encountered people who are even anti-community. They would rather everybody just stay home on Shabbat and do your own thing. And um, I I, I don't know. In my opinion, those types of attitudes are in contradistinction to what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about having a passion to see local community built. And that happens when we get together. So I'm very pro-community in that regard. And I get the impression that Paul was too. Um, Let's just look at prophecy first here, and let's just, last week we talked about just reading the Bible and believing the verses, right? Uh, Usually if you have wonky theology, it's because you only factor some of the verses in, and you ignore half of the verses, eh? So let's just look at what Paul has to say in this chapter about prophecy. This isn't going to be very fancy, it's just going to be some like meat and potatoes, let's read the chapter. Um, In uh, 14 verse 3, he gives the three hallmarks of bona fide prophecy. Uh, number one, glitz and glamour. Number two, a lot of telling of the future. And number three, really mean. Okay, I'm kidding. That's not really what he said. What he said is, these are, these are like the three hallmarks of real prophecy. Like if you're speaking from God's heart, this is what you're going to be doing. Firstly, you are going to be building people up. You're going to be edifying them. Right? like in a constructive matter. Um, number two, you're going to be exhorting people. I don't know, exhorting, I've never been able to connect with that word. I think it's a freaky word. Like I think of demons being cast out of people, like what's the word for that? Like Exorcism. exorcism. Or I think of like extortion, like I don't know, exhortation always kind of throws me, right? Okay, but here's the Greek word, this is cool. The Greek word is paraklesis. Everybody say paraklesis. paraklesis. Do you know what the Holy Spirit as the helper is called in the Gospel of John? The paraclete, so it's the same word. So the Holy Spirit is like the one who comes alongside you. That's literally what the word means. And He like, he helps you, He encourages you, He supports you, right? The, he's the paraclete. So exhortation, it's paraklesis in Greek. It means when you come alongside someone, you, you, you strengthen them, you encourage them, you support them. That's the idea. That is the heart of prophecy. So if someone is claiming to speak for God... And they're not exhibiting that attitude and that activity. uh, Double check the thing, Uh, and then the third thing—it's kind of along those lines. It's like consolation. It's like comforting people. Like we are broken people, as human beings, Uh, we have all experienced pain. um, Probably most of us very deeply at some point. And like, in our culture, we usually gloss that over and we don't talk about it and we stuff our emotions. And I've done that and it's really messed me up in in the past. But like, God isn't like that. Like when God comes onto the scene, he, he wants to speak to your heart. He wants to comfort that stuff in your life, right? And when we're connected with Him, when we're moving in the gift of prophecy, we're going to be speaking on that level too. You're going to comfort people's hearts. And I don't know, like, I'm a male, okay? Sometimes like talking on a heart level or being really like comforting and stuff, it can kind of make me uncomfortable. I, 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 it's almost embarrassing to admit that, but it's true, right? But this is the heart of the Father. And when we, when we flow in this gifting, then we're going we're gonna to be discussing things on that level and touching people with his love. Um, along those lines, in 1431, he, uh, he kind of elaborates on the issue. He says, so you can all prophesy one by one. Why? So that all may learn, everybody say learn, and all may be exhorted. What does exhortation mean again? Encouraged. Like encouraged, that's correct. Okay, so did you, did you notice that? When someone prophesies, you actually learn something. So we don't have to eliminate like, the intelligent aspect of who we are from the prophetic capacity. So, you know, in that regard, there's teaching, but there's also teaching with a prophetic edge. And like when you teach with a prophetic edge, people walk away hearing the word of God, and they actually learn something. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Because, uh, you know, the whole concept of learning is tied very closely into God's Torah, His teaching, right? So there's like, there's this very close link between the prophetic gifting and teaching God's Word, His Torah. It's kind of the idea there. I, I'm into this. This is just... I just feel like I'm really... I'm enjoying this, digging in like this. Um, 14, verse 5. Paul says that he wishes that all of those believers would... Uh, would speak in tongues but even more that they would prophesy and uh, I'm curious like how many of you are from a Pentecostal slash charismatic background maybe PAOC or AOG or something like that okay quite a few of us um, I, I, I am too I, I would call myself like a conservative charismatic that means I don't go for like the really crazy like stuff that I'm not going to go into detail with um, so like that's my background too and I, I, I think it's important for us to kind of take a pulse in this area very often like tongues is touting it, touted as THE gift it's like that's the one you're really pushed to, uh, to go for. But according to Paul, our priority should be even higher for people to connect with the gift of prophecy because they will be hearing the Father's voice and they will be empowered to speak His Word, communicate His truth, share His heart with people. So remember that. That was Paul's priority. That can be ours too. Um, 1431, Paul says, you can all prophesy one by one. Everybody say all So let me ask you, is that a gift for you? Uh, According to Paul, it is. Yes. In fact, Paul even said, you should really want that one. Let me ask you, when you really want something, what does that look like? You go after it? Zealous? Huh? What does it look like when I want like a really nice one-ton diesel truck with duallys? make goals and plans <laughs> it means I daydream about it, right? Like, I think about it. And, yeah. So, the, the, these are maybe some fun examples. But, you know, so what does that look like when we really desire that gift? And when you really look at it on this level, like, it's actually a very attractive gift, hey? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, okay, here here's something that I've seen in the broader Messianic uh, community. I have observed that Okay, you know Midrash, right? Midrash is like when you really break open the scriptures and you have a big discussion and stuff. I am all for Midrash. I love it. Um, We were talking about that last week. Um, Cindy, we were explaining to Cindy about Midrash, right? And what this word means and how in the Jewish world you have the Beit Midrash, the house of study. And you go and you, you take out the holy books and you sit down with the holy book over a desk with someone and you just go back and forth and you go deep, right? And, and I love that. But sometimes I've seen Messianic communities where people sit around in the Midrash for two hours straight and it's all their thoughts. And it's disconnected from the Spirit of God. And, and it just turns into this big human thing. And I love humans. I'm a human, right? But I mean, really, do we come to congregation ultimately to hear a bunch of other people's opinions? I, I hope that... I hope you don't come here to hear my opinions. I don't want to share my opinions, right? I'm, I'm kind of crazy, but like, I, I want to share the truth of God. And so what does that look like? like what, what does it look like when a messianic congregation gathers and we function like the early church? Like when we're moving in the gift of prophecy, where we're speaking the word of God, where we're hearing His voice, where that revelation is flowing... Like, I love Midrash, right? There's a place for it. But sometimes I feel that Midrash replaces the gift of prophecy in the Messianic community. And we don't want that. We want both. I want a lot of both, personally. Yeah. So that, that, That's a personal thought. And that doesn't apply so much to us as a community. I'm talking on a, a broader movement level here. Right? Okay, let, let's look at tongues also. Um, everybody has a tongue, right? It's hiding in your mouth right now. And it usually, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty useful in terms of eating and communicating and stuff. Um, tongues is actually an idiom. Like the Hebrew word for uh, a tongue is Lashon. Everybody say Lashon. It's also the word for a language, okay? Like, for instance, Hebrew in the Jewish world is called Lashon HaKodesh. <coughs> it's called the Holy Tongue, the Holy Language. So uh, when you're talking about tongues here, you're talking about languages, right? This has to do with multiple languages. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, let's have a look at this. Um, here, here are some ideas that I've encountered about the gift of tongues/slash languages. Um, I, I personally think some of these are myths or not correct, but I'll share them with you, and then we'll just look at the verses and what they have to say about tongues, and we'll see if these ideas hold up and are consistent with all the verses. All right. Um, number one, tongues are always a message from God to people. They're exclusively a vehicle to communicate the gospel to people of another language, as happened at Shavuot slash Pentecost. So the corollary of this concept is tongues should always be a literal human language that's spoken by some people group somewhere on the planet. Someone somewhere out there should be able to understand this thing, right? Uh, That's the first idea. Uh, Number two, this is a little more popular in the Messianic community. Tongues was Paul's way of referring to Hebrew. Okay? Uh, number three, tongues isn't really important and isn't worth our time discussing. After all, we have the Torah, right? Uh, seriously. Like, I love the Torah. We are returning to the Torah. But sometimes we become so Torah centric that we lose the centrality of Yeshua or, like, the Holy Spirit. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit get very little airtime. And that's unfortunate. Um, I, I see the gifts of the Holy Spirit being like Yeshua's way of personally ministering to us, it's how he expresses his, his love. To his bride. Like every gift of the Holy Spirit, when he moves through one of the gifts in the congregational setting, that's like a kiss from our bridegroom. That's how I like to see the gifts. It's his way of, of caring for us and loving us, right? So um, the, the, these, are some, these are things that are very precious and very close to us. Um, number four, the gift of tongues is too controversial and it is too often abused, so it's best left on the shelf. And I can understand this. Um, I, I've been in settings where I feel that the gift of tongues was abused or there was just really crazy stuff happening in conjunction with it. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, number three and number four kind of go, go hand in hand, like this thing's been abused, um, it's controversial, so let's just ignore it, right? Um, so anyway, these are some ideas that are floating out there. Now let's just read what Paul has to say about tongues and uh, see, see, uh, see how, that, how, that, how these ideas stand up to what Paul says. Um, number, number, okay, chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Would that include tongues? Okay, so right off the bat it must be relevant because he says this is something you should want. Um, 14, verse 2, Paul says that it is the language of prayer. In other words, it's not always a message from the Holy One to people. This is a, this is a language of prayer. Uh, he goes on to say it's something that nobody understands. In, in other words, it's not always a human language and it isn't always designed for people in the room to be able to understand. Um, he goes on to say that you're, it, when, you're, when, you're, when you're doing this thing, like in spirit, you're speaking mysteries. Um, that, that Hebrew term for mysteries, like a mystery in Hebrew is sod. Everybody say sod. Um, you know the, the introductory biblical Hebrew like uh, roots, course, Hayasod? The foundation. It's the same thing there. So, sod in Hebrew is like something that's foundational, something that is like an underlying below ground reality. All right? That's the idea behind sod. So, that's the idea behind mysteries. Um, In in traditional Jewish hermeneutics, uh, the deepest level of in scripture interpretation is called sod. That's the really deep stuff. So, um,. He says, like, you're speaking mysteries where in spirit. And I I think you could understand that in one of three ways, maybe all of them. uh, Number one, you're praying from your spirit. You are not just a chunk of flesh running around. You are a spiritual being, and you live in in a body. Your body is your earth suit, right? So it's like, according to him, it's like praying from your spirit, from the deepest element of who you are, from the element through which you interface with the spiritual dimensions. Uh, that's the concept of your spirit, in my opinion. Um, praying in the spirit of God, it also means that you are praying in His spirit. <coughs> Excuse me, and uh, you could also understand that to mean you're speaking words that register in the spiritual dimension. It's like, hey, okay, uh, words, right? It's like, technically speaking, there are sound waves that you make by, like, you know, f- hitting the atmosphere with your vocal cords and moving your mouth, and then it makes these like vibrations. And um, you know, if you know what the vibrations mean as they register in your ear, then you understand the language. But th- that's a physical—that's a physical phenomenon. But according to Paul, when you're when you're praying in the spirit, your words aren't just a physical phenomenon; they're actually something that registers in the spiritual dimension, and that's powerful because, like, the f- the spiritual dimension and the realities of the spiritual dimension directly affect the physical dimension. As it goes in heaven, so it goes on earth. You know that concept, right? So, um, this is. So this is a very potent weapon in the arsenal of the righteous, you, you could say. Um, 14 verse 14, along those lines, he says, uh, it's your spirit praying as contrasted with your mind praying. So in other words, when you're praying with, when, in this gifting, your mind doesn't understand what you're saying. You, you're, your mind isn't part of this equation. You're praying straight from your spirit, straight from the spirit of God in you. It bypasses your brain. And uh, you know what, sometimes we really need that. For some of us, our brains are our god. You know, our, our ability to rationalize something and come to a logical conclusion is like the be-all and end-all of truth. And um, unfortunately, when we take that approach, we can really miss, like, miss the ball. You know, so... Yeah, that's right. That's actually the next verse in my line. Are you peeking over my shoulders <laughs> <laughs> it's good, it's really good. yeah in 14 verse four, he says, "When you pray in tongues, you are building, you're building yourself up. It's a very spiritually constructive activity. So it's like a spiritual weightlifting session, okay When you pray in tongues, it's like you're pumping spiritual iron. So if you want to get spiritually ripped, like pray in tongues regularly, and you're well on your way. That's how I understand it like in a dynamic, uh, dynamic analogy, right? Well, okay, in the Jewish world, prayer is something that like in this context would be done out loud. For instance, Paul says, if you're, if you're blessing in the Spirit, and there's someone there who isn't gifted, how is he supposed to say you're all main, his amen at the giving of thanks, right? Okay, let's, let, we'll get to that in a second. Hold that question of D's in mind. Um, 14 verse 5, he says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. It's so like, write that on a sticky note and put it on your fridge. Quote from Paul, right? I wish that you all spoke in tongues. I don't know, like Paul was in touch with Messiah. Right? I, I assume that if that's how Paul felt That was reflecting something of Messiah's heart So maybe that's something that Messiah wants For each one of us um, 14 verse 13 Paul says "Okay. So if you, like, if you speak in tongues publicly In the assembly Then you should pray to be able to interpret your tongue right? So if, you, if, you're like, if you're doing loud tongues Then you need to make sure you ask God To give you the interpretation This is halakha from Paul uh, What is halakha? Somebody tell me Okay, it's literally your walk. That's right. It means like how you apply the Bible to your life, right? Walking out the Torah. So this is halacha from Paul. If you speak in tongues like loudly in the assembly, pray for an interpretation. That's just the way, that's the way you do things. Um, 14 verse 16, he says that praying in tongues is equivalent to giving thanks. Um, we also learn from this, cha- this verse here. Here, I'll, I'll just read it. 14 verse 16, he says, um, Okay, so if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the all men, you're giving of you thanks? He doesn't have a clue what you're saying. right? So we learn a couple of things from this. Uh, firstly, so it's tantamount to giving thanks. It's, uh, there are people who fill the place of the ungifted, according to Paul. Um, maybe they're new people or maybe, I don't know. Anyway, um, he also, it's interesting, we learned from this that the early believers followed a Jewish tradition. It's a Jewish tradition of employing a Hebrew liturgical term in their prayers. What's that Hebrew liturgical term? Amen. Everybody say Amen. Amen. In in English, people usually say Amen or Amen, right? But in Hebrew, it's Amen. Um, That's a Jewish tradition. That's a Hebrew liturgical term that the whole Christian world employs. I think that's kind of cool, actually. You know, um, I, I love I love it when we pray like Tirzah, we already taught Tirza to say Amen at the end of our prayers. Man, she says it with gusto. And you know, I, I really believe that there's something to that. Even when a little child, like she senses when we're praying, I can tell. And and she says Amen at the end and, and that's powerful. So um, this is this is a practice that the early believers had. Saying Amen uh, to other people's prayers. Uh, fourteen verse eighteen, we learn that Shaul, Paul prayed in tongues. A lot. In fact, he says he prayed in tongues more than any other disciple in that, the early Messianic community in Corinth. So, like, this guy was, like, a heavy hitter when it came to tongues, right? He employed this gift a lot. I don't know, maybe that was part of, like, his, uh, his like, secret of his spiritual power, you know, kind of the Samson thing or something. Maybe it was, like, one of his secret weapons or whatever. But according to Paul, this is, a, this is something that he did a lot of. Um, 14 verse 19, Paul emphasizes intelligent communication over tongues that are unintelligible to the mind. So we learn that tongues are something that like, is not intelligible to your mind. And he says, like, in the congregation, actually I'll read that verse, because he, he, he elucidates it quite nicely. Um, verse, verse 19, he says, However, in the congregation like when we get together, right? I desire to speak five words, everybody say five words, with my mind, that is to say on an intelligent level, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So there's a place for tongues, right? It's, very, it's to be valued highly, but Paul says when we get together as a community, we really need to prioritize intelligent communication. Why did he say five words? Just out of curiosity. Paul was a Jew, right? What does five mean to a Jew? Um, if you Have any of you seen like, uh, a Hebrew Bible that just has the first five books of the Bible? What is that called? It's called a Chumash. Chumash means five. So it's kind of like if, uh, in the Jewish world, if you wanted just a straight copy of the Torah, you'd be like, here, pass me a five. Right? So when Paul says, I would rather speak five words in, like, intelligently, I believe he was referring to teaching the Torah, the ba- teaching the basics of the law of Moses. These are our spiritual ABCs. Uh, He goes on to say that I may instruct others. What's the Hebrew word for instruction? Torah. That's right. So Paul had a passion to teach new believers the Torah. Um, That's like a general principle, right? Uh, This is a general principle in terms of like in the business world, in human dealings, if you're in sales or whatever. uh, We read in in chapter 14, verse 11, He says, okay, so like if I'm talking to you and I'm speaking a different language than, you know, the lists of languages that you know, you are going to think I'm a barbarian. And I like the word barbarian, you know, it conjures up some funny images. Um, In Greek it like, it it just means like a foreigner, right? Someone who's not from your, from your people. So this is a very important, this is a very important thing. If you want to like reach somebody, if you want to make sense to that person, or, you know, be convincing to any degree, you have to be able to speak their language, and, and that's a principle that applies, like I said, in every sector of society. Um, it certainly applies for us as a community. You know? When we're reaching out to the broader Jewish community, you need to know Hebrew or you're just going to be floundering around and the Jewish person is going to write you off as a barbarian within 10 seconds. Um, I've observed this uh, similarly when we're, when we're reaching people in the bro- broader body of Christ. Uh, with understanding God's Torah and uh, Hebrew roots, etc., you need to be able to talk their language too. Or they're going to be like, You are really weird. And I mean, we are really weird, right? But we don't want to make it come across as any weirder than we have to. Um, I, I'm joking, right? Everybody's weird. It's just in different areas. Um, there, there, there's like a Jewish idiom uh, the, the Torah speaks in the language of men. It's, it's a Jewish proverb, right? And uh, it's very true. So, you know, when when the Father communicates with people, he talks their language, uh, we want to do the same thing. Uh, Here's something interesting. In 1423, um, I'll read it. He says, okay, so therefore if uh, the whole congregation assembles together and everybody's speaking in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, won't they say that you're crazy? So so we learn something here. We learn that, uh, like, Paul, he actually cared about... Visitors to their congregations and what they would think, even people who didn't have spiritual endowments or maybe that was a little like unfamiliar to them. He, he cared about what those people would think. Now, listen, there's a difference between like you know just taking some thought to that and being controlled by what other people think, right? We fear him, we are in awe of him, and we are go- we are following we, like we are pursuing him when we gather. But at the same time, you you want to if you have new people, you want them to be able to track and understand and. You know, not think you're too crazy. I mean, you know, we're, I'm a little crazy, right? But I don't want people to think I'm any crazier than they, than they have to think. Um, that's kind of the idea there, maybe. So Paul says, like, so if everyone is praying at the top of their lungs, lungs and tongues, uh, they, they are going to think you're crazy. That's what Paul says, right? But then he contrasts it in the next verse. If everyone's prophesying and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is what? He's convicted by everybody. He's called to account by everybody. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship to God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This was a, this was a dynamic in the early Yeshua movement. People would walk into gatherings of believers, and people would start like walking up to them and being like, you know what? God is telling me this about you. Uh, this is something where like you need to get accountable with this is a secret in your heart and what's the result like their jaws drop and then they drop on the floor and they say wow like God is seriously with you guys and he's real this is kind of the idea and um, man I've never been to seriously I've never been to a church service or a messianic Jewish gathering where that happened never but but, but that was the dynamic in the early the early uh, the early church I, I, I want that Seriously, I do. And, uh, you know, I've said numerous times, and I want to say again, I'm not claiming to function as a prophet, but, like, I invite accountability. You know, if you disagree with me on something, I encourage you to call me on it, to to ask me about it, you know, um, because we're growing. We're all on a journey. We're disciples. In other words, we're learning, right? And and that includes me, too. So um, I I really value accountability in in the local congregation uh, like we have here. So... Anyway, so that's the deal, right? Paul says, okay, if you're all like, speaking in tongues, this is how people are going to respond. If you're all prophesying, this is how people are going to respond. Um, one is a desirable response and the other is not as desirable. Uh, 14 verse 27, he says, If anybody speaks in a tongue, uh, it should be by, by two or at the most three, and each in turn and one must interpret. So, like, if we're going to do loud tongues in our congregation, like kind of public stuff, there needs to be an interpreter according to Paul. We need to ask God for an interpretation. And if someone isn't like, gifted with interpretation, then what is, what is his, uh, what's the second half of the equation? He said he must keep silent in the congregation and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay, this seems like a contradistinction, uh, contradiction in terms. How can you be silent and at the same time be talking to yourself and God? Um, I would understand that to be like praying quietly on a practical level, Right? So, I mean, like, I I pray in tongues regularly. Um, It's something that I value, and I I find a real intimacy with Messiah through that act. But at the same time, this is how I understand it, according to Paul. This is Paul's halacha. Like, don't do really loud tongues. I I don't know, what do you think? Give me some feedback on that. Like, I would rather err on the side of welcoming the Holy Spirit and um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit than err on the side of stifling the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? So I want to feel this out with you guys. Well, from from what I can see, it's almost like there are two types of this gift. I mean, there are times when someone will be operating it in the sense of prayer, and it's kind of a one-on-one thing with the Holy One. And then there are times when it seems like it's like a message from Him for people, where uh, maybe an interpretation is sometimes required too. So, you know, I just want to feel this thing out and uh, try and take Paul at his word on it. It actually reminds me of a story my brother Christopher told me about these counterfeiters who who, uh, did a big load and they accidentally produced $18 bills. And, and so um, they're like, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, I don't know. Let's go to this area. The people there, you know, they're a bunch of hicks and they're not very smart, so maybe they'll take them. So anyway, they go to this area and they start trying to pass off the $18 bills. So the first place, he you know, he gives, he gives the guy an 18, and he says, can I get change for this? And the guy said, oh, certainly, sir. Would you like that in threes or in nines? <laughs> Cut. Yeah, that was really relevant, wasn't it? Um, thank you to my brother Christopher for all the jokes he put in my brain. Um yeah so 14 verse 28 he says uh, so you know if there's not an interpreter let him speak to himself and to God so I I don't know I don't understand what it means to talk to yourself in tongues like that sounds a little crazy you know but that's what Paul said so apparently you can do that Um, so okay moving on in uh, chapter 14 verse 33 Paul gives like what the hallmark of a spirit-led meeting is the hallmark of a spirit-led meeting is shalom he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of shalom. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he also said, like the, let, let, the, let Messiah shalom rule in your hearts, right? So that's like, the shalom of Messiah is like our umpire, our governor. Is it? You know, it's like, when you, when you feel his peace, you know things are well in the world and, and in the meeting. And when there's not peace, then you need to stop and say what's going on. So, Paul, Paul says, like, stuff like confusion, uh, tumult. Like that—that's not what God is about, right? So, like, if those are the hallmarks of a meeting, the meeting has probably been hijacked by another spirit. You, you could infer that based on what Paul is saying, right? And, um, I mean, I'm not going to look at movements out there or churches or whatever and say, Oh, you know, a little too much confusion there for me. Must not be a God. Better write them off. You know, like, I, I have some very high standards in that area. I, I make a point of not speaking against other people or groups whenever possible. But, you know, when it comes to my personal life, when it comes to our gatherings, it, it seems to be what Paul is saying, you know. And, um, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's possible For everybody to be praying at the top of their lungs at the same time and to still have a real spirit of shalom. Uh, The Korean believers do that. Everybody prays at the same time, but you know what? It's very peaceful. And that's like, that's a supernatural peace, right? So that's maybe how I'd see it. Um, In 14, verse 40, he, he gives like a couple more kind of kind of rules or whatever, he says, like, uh, so everything should be done decently and in order, right? Uh, decently is from Strong's 2154. It means, like, decently, properly, decorously, according to Strong's. Um, and it's from Strong's 2156, which mean, which involves community leadership, like, specifically, where it says, like, there was a prominent citizen, uh, da-da-da, there are a couple of places where it mentions that. That's the idea there. And also, like, a community's public front. So... It's kind of the idea behind this one word. And then Strong's uh, number 5010, um, the one about being in order, involves being arranged in a fixed succession and dignified. It's from Strong's 5021, which uh, is translated, like, in other places in the New Testament as being designated, determined, appointed, set, and established. So, I mean, I'm trying to get the feel. What does this decently and in order thing mean? Because I've been at religious meetings where decently and and in order was like the club that people's hearts were beat with. And it was a very boring and dead meeting. And I, I don't want that, right? So I'm just trying to get a feel for what Paul's really talking about here. Um, maybe, maybe what I would understand it to mean is like you do have something of a structure, you do have something of an order, but it's flexible and and it's sensitive to the spirit, you know, like I, we try and incorporate that here. We, we have stuff that we do, but it's not like set in stone. We want to be sensitive to him. At the same time, there is something of a, of a structure, you know. Um, yeah. Okay, so here are our favorite verses in the whole New Testament. Paul's uh, comments from Paul, the male chauvinist, about women. Um, okay, so he says, women are to keep silent in the churches, right? They're not allowed to talk. So, um, okay, here's the thing though. We, like, we, if we read this in the broader context, in the same passage, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying. Right? So obviously women were allowed to... From what I understand they were definitely allowed to talk and communicate <laughs> in the congregation um, what does this mean maybe it just has to do with cultivating like the gentle and quiet spirit that Peter talked about that was valuable and like a really precious thing to God um, that's how I would interpret it maybe the same thing is like you know when it talks about tongues okay so if there's not an interpreter like be quiet meaning like praying tongues but don't, like, go crazy with it, you know? Uh, don't be really overbearing. Uh, maybe maybe that. Like, I'm trying to get a feel for this, right? In the synagogue, yes. However, like, the believers usually gathered in homes. Like, we read about the congregation that meet, met in, like, Priscilla and Nicola's house at the end of this this letter, right? So, I don't know if that was the case here. Uh, Corinthian women were famous for being, like, really out of hand and stuff, too. So, I might have had something to do with that culturally. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to get a feel for that. Maybe so. Maybe that's the spirit of the thing. Like, how can we gather and how can the sisters express what God is giving them in that gentle and quiet spirit that glorifies Messiah? And um, you know, like, how can you operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and keep your femininity intact? Maybe that has something to do with it. You know, for the male side, the question is, how can you dance and worship and keep your masculinity intact? Right. And that's a hard one, right? It's like, man, I'm sitting here, like, doo 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 doo. Some dances are a little better than others. Some of them are like, man, this is, this is like challenging, right? Because I have like a construction worker background. When I began learning how to dance and worship, like, it was painful. I was like, my body is not accustomed to moving this way and to taking these little steps and going in circles and whatever. But you know what? Like King David danced passionately. I mean, he did it in his underwear, right? We don't do that anyway. Okay, maybe it wasn't a linen thing, whatever, right? But, um, but anyway, so I'm, anyway, that's really off topic. But I'm trying to find out maybe the, 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 the male side of this thing too. No, I, I mean, I, I know many women who, for instance, wear dresses and head coverings. And they don't do it because it's commanded in the Bible. Because, you know, um, most people would understand that it's not. But, but they do it to say, I am different. I am not one of the women of the world. Like, I have high standards and I'm pure. And, uh, you know what, men do look at women who wear skirts and head coverings differently, generally speaking. You know, so maybe that would be an example of that 2,000 years ago, yeah. It would be a lot easier just to, like, gloss over this passage, right? Paul's comments on women, but, what's that? And thank you for letting me speak. Oh, yeah, totally. It's like our bouncers will now escort you out of the building because you opened your mouth. <laughs> you know? Here's another principle that I think could be could be applicable. Like, okay, in verse 35 he says, So if they desire to learn anything, let the master and husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in congregation. So wh- what's the principle here? Maybe that we can learn, like, in the, in the married... married uh marital relationship maybe the principle is like if you have a spiritual question even if you don't think your husband is a very spiritual or connected guy or maybe if he just doesn't care at all or doesn't even believe in God what if you went to him first and just if you were thinking about something you had a question what if you asked him? you know it's, it's, it's showing honor to a husband it's telling him that you respect him even if he just gets mad and is like I don't know how am I supposed to know or like go ask somebody who cares right you're still you're showing that honor and I wonder if that isn't the principle there and I, I don't know like for me when Genevieve has a question and she asks me and I don't know the answer sometimes it's kind of challenging like you know it kind of makes me get off of my butt and go and look it up or ask someone who would know and uh, hey that's good for us males you know so I mean there's definitely a place in the congregation for if you have a question to share that but uh, what, what I hear Paul saying is like go to your husband first with questions right and, um, and make sure that uh, maybe on a broader level it's saying like prioritize your marriage and your family life over community life. Your marriage comes first, your family life comes first, then congregation. So if you're like running church programs four evenings a week and your marriage is suffering, just walk away from the programs, right? Your family life comes first. Maybe that's what we could, we could get from that. Yeah. Man, we have like a lot of programs going here where all our programs are going to collapse now, I'm sure. Yeah, that's true. She was his messenger of the resurrection. (laughs) That's quite an honor, actually. Yeah. So um, let's just look at a couple more things here. Uh, In 14 verse 21, Paul quotes something. I think it's from the book of Isaiah. I can't remember. It's like, by men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, etc. I think it's Isaiah, but... I I forgot to look it up but anyway he says in the Torah it's written this is interesting because he's referring to a section of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament that isn't strictly like the five books of Moses he calls it the Torah so you can call the whole Tanakh the whole Hebrew Bible that is Torah that is God's teaching Uh, similarly you could also along those lines definitely look at the New Testament look at the writings of the Apostles as Torah Um, the New Testament carries full weight of scriptural of authority for uh, for the messianic community, the writings of Mashiach's emissaries, you know, um, Christ's apostles, it carries the same weight as the Torah. It's like maybe you don't even, maybe you can't even understand the Torah outside the context of the New Covenant. Maybe you need the 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 it all to get the, the full picture. Yeah, Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Excellent, thank you. That's where it is. Um, in 15 verses 1 to 3, Paul says we as a congregation are saved by the gospel and we stand by the gospel. Uh, I think what we could infer from that is like when we allow the gospel to be decentralized in our ideology and in our faith expression, we as a community and as a broader movement are well on our way to losing touch with salvation, which is a horrifying concept, and falling away right if you stand by the gospel then when you lose touch with the gospel or you allow it to be decentralized you are going to fall that's the concept and, and this is something the father's really been challenging me in am i primarily a gospel oriented person like is the is the message of messiah what i what i live and what i breathe and what i eat for breakfast and what i what i think about you know what i'm saying so l- let's grow in that area as a community like let's go on a quest to really Encounter the power of the gospel to see what this thing is all about for ourselves Where it's real like where it burns in your heart where it's like you want to talk to everybody about the gospel Right so you know what Torah is important Torah is foundational to who we are But it, it, Paul didn't say that we're saved by the Torah and that we stand by the Torah He said it's the gospel right and Torah is part of that picture Torah is an essential component of that in terms of how we express our uh, positional of righteousness um, the time frame of this letter, 16 verse 8, Paul says uh, until Shavuot, which is like Pentecost, the festival of weeks, right? So um, earlier in this letter when Paul talks about the festival of unleavened bread in chapter 5 and saying let's celebrate the festival, and then he gives a little draw, he gives a little like analogy about cleaning the garbage out of our lives and stuff. Um, he was literally writing that in the time frame of Passover and unleavened bread. And let me ask you, if Paul like, believed that all of the Old Testament law was done away with and it was irrelevant to New Covenant believers, why was he talking about the festival of weeks? Why was he, why was he factoring Shavuot into his, the way he like, you know, um, did his day timer? So this is just one example from Paul. Sometimes we'll say, people will say, well, you know, Paul was anti-Judaism and he came to bring this new Christianity thing where we don't do any of the stuff from the Old Testament. You know, the feasts and stuff, bad. Thumbs down, divisive, uh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know? uh, I don't know, that's kind of pop theology often. But, but this, is, this is like an anchor verse where we learn that Paul, he actually like, scheduled his, travel, his like, travel schedule according to the festivals. So he must have been doing Savuot when he was out in the Diaspora. And you know, he, this wasn't in the Land of Israel, so he wasn't just factoring this in because everybody around him was doing it. Everybody around him wasn't doing it. He was in the, the Gentile world. So, if, Paul, if it was good enough for Paul as an Apostle to the non-Jewish world, then it's good enough for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So anyway, um, we're going to be celebrating Passover this year and Unleavened Bread. We're going to be counting up to Pentecost. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll, we'll have some like, teaching times and discussion about that stuff when we, when we get to it. I hope, that, I hope that you can all join us for that, for that time. It's a very Messiah-centered time. Let's, uh, let's just look at the Torah portion for five minutes, and then we'll wrap here at like 1240. So like in the Torah, one of the things it says is not to take bribes. So I thought I'd read you a little story about that. So a defendant in a lawsuit involving large sums of money was saying to his lawyer, if I lose this case, I'll be ruined. It's in the judge's hands now, said the lawyer. Would it help if I sent the judge a box of cigars? asked the defendant. Oh no, said the lawyer, this judge is a stickler for ethical behavior. A stunt like that would prejudice him against you. He might even find you in contempt of the court. In fact, you shouldn't even smile at the judge. Within the course of time, the judge rendered a decision in favor of the defendant. As the defendant left the courthouse, he said to his lawyer, Thanks for the tip about the cigars. It worked. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we would have lost the case if you'd sent them, said the lawyer. But I did send them, said the defendant. What? You did? Yes, that's how we won the case. I don't understand, said the lawyer. It's easy. I sent the cheapest cigars that I could find to the judge, but enclosed the plaintiff's business card. (laughs) So, a lesson in what not to do, right? Okay, so like, two of the things we learn about is in ancient Israel as a theocracy, in terms of national legislation and the court systems, um, there were several things that were regarded as capital offenses. Like, um, striking and killing someone, like murder, that was a capital offense. But hitting your parents or cursing them was a capital offense too. Ouch! I think that tells me something about like the level of honor that God is calling us to have for our parents. Um, The Hebrew word for cursing is like kalal. Everybody say kalal. It literally means to make light of. Like kal in Hebrew is light. Kalal is to make light of, right? It's like not giving someone that weight. And um, I mean, you know, uh, we've had some discussions about our our parents, some of us in this room. I I know that, you know, for some of us, our our parents have let us down at times or hurt us at times, sometimes very severely. But um, maybe that doesn't matter. I, I, here, here's what I'm thinking, okay? Uh, like, and this is something that I've had to go through. This is a process that I've had to go through. Like, Fatherhood is in the image of God. Motherhood is in the image of God. So regardless of that person and their failings as a human, you can honor that position because that position is created in the image of God. And how that looks like on a practical level, um, actually Jewish tradition has some very helpful customs about how to honor your parents, how to relate to them and treat them. Um... But that, that's, that's one thing that we learn that really convicted me. Like, okay, my mom and I, we're on really good terms. Like, we're friends, you know? And, and sometimes, like, I can... I, sometimes I kind of joke around with her and sometimes... She's probably listening because she listens to our live, our live streams. Hi, Mom. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. But anyway, like, sometimes... Um, I, I, I feel like sometimes I almost... Maybe I joke around with her too much or I tease her too much. Like, I can do that, you know? So this is an area where I think maybe the father's kind of, like, tapping my heart, you know? like I mean there's this place for friendship and joking but making light of someone not giving them that weight that they deserve Um, yeah maybe that's something else Um, okay you know none of us here have murdered someone I assume but here's here's you know how the master would take a commandment and he'd say okay so this is what you've heard and that's good but I'm gonna take it to a heart level so okay striking and killing people I, I assume none of us have done that but what about our words Is it possible for us to strike someone with their words? Is it possible to kill someone with their words? Is it possible to kill their reputation? What do we call that in our culture? Character assassination, right? It's rampant. It's rampant in the secular world. It's rampant in Christianity. Like, very often we will have no problems with spewing off and saying negative things about someone. I don't care if they're true or not. We will say negative things about someone and we'll like, we'll slur them. We'll We'll give the reputation, like we'll dishonor them. And the problem is when we do that, we're bringing dishonor to ourselves too. To the degree that you throw mud on someone's face, you're also inadvertently like throwing mud on your own face. It's, it's just the way it works, right? You're, you're, and you dishonor God. Absolutely. So, you know, like words that are cold or unkind, words that are hurtful, discouraging, destructive, that's killing someone's heart. And um, words are important. Yeah, so let's, you know what? Like, we are not life-giving. Like, as human beings, we are empty. Um, We get really mad and we just want to tear into someone and hurt them. Um, Really, like every single one of us do. But the good news is, like, Yeshua is alive and he is a life-giving spirit and he wants to be the one to come and, like, fill us. And he wants to be the one to love through us and be life-giving through us, eh? So let's let him do that. Like, let's let the Son of God live through us and, and, and speak life-giving words through us and, and honorable things through us. Because that's who He is, eh? And that glorifies the Father. Yeah. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other commandments in this part, so like, we totally don't have time to run over them all. I, 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 feel, I, I feel like this has been like an ample spiritual meal. I don't know. Genevieve, Genevieve, uh, ample is like Genevieve's in my word of the month, right? But I, I don't know. Does everybody feel like amply satisfied? Do we... Feel filled up spiritually speaking. I, I I feel good. Okay, maybe maybe we'll leave it at that. Um, there's other stuff in this in the parasha. I mean, this Torah portion is really rich. Hey, um, maybe we can discuss some of it over egg, You know, there, there's one commandment that would be kind of fun to discuss. He says um, concerning like, okay, um, I'll just throw this out to you and maybe we can discuss it. He says in 23:13. Uh, So concerning everything which I've said to you, be on your guard and don't mention the name of other gods or let them be heard from your mouth. That's an interesting one. What does that look like? What doesn't that look like? Maybe we can talk about that some over-owning. I don't know. That could be a fun one for discussion. Especially because we're connecting with Hebrew. We're connecting with God's Hebrew names and titles. You know. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 he said "Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher so if you're being taught the word by us we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we're giving you for free that way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us, and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at chronomessiah.com, and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.